It certainly wasn't a very comfortable ride. Nobody told me that the last 45 seconds you can't breathe. I just said to myself, this is so far away from Star Trek and Flash Gordon. This is like the most rudimentary tin can possible. It's being inside a Roman candle, being inside an explosive device. That's Dr. Roberta Bonder recalling the day she became the first female Canadian astronaut in space. She's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast brought to you by One Ocean Expeditions. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We have Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of York boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means, it means that our history is very strong. And we flew all over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 165 or so. There are shrimp fish swimming around outside. It's just fabulous here. Well, another first for Canada. Yes, that was Roberta Bondar again, leading off that waterfall of Explorer Voices. Welcome to Explore, the Canadian Geographic podcast where we talk to some of the world's greatest explorers about their adventures and how Canada, its landscape, people, wildlife, and history have inspired their spirit of discovery. I'm your host, David McGuffin. Our guest on this edition of Explore circled our planet for eight days on board the Space Shuttle Discovery back in 1992. In doing that, Dr. Roberta Bonder not only became the first Canadian woman in space, she was also the first neurologist to go into orbit. Her studies on the impact of space travel on the human body have made her one of the world's leading experts in that field, work that is being built on to this day by Canada's David Saint-Jacques on board the International Space Station. An honorary vice president of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, Bonder is also noted for her work as a photographer and author and for promoting the protection of the wild spaces left on our planet. Born in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, she grew up during the awe-inspiring early days of the space race. Exploration, she says, is not something you retire from. It's part of one's life ethic. I'm recording this in the Sir Christopher Ndache reading room at the headquarters of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society on the banks of one of the world's great exploration routes, the Ottawa River. But from my conversation with Dr. Bonder, Explore went on the road to the offices of the Roberta Bonder Foundation in Toronto, where we talked about everything from moon bases to Mars missions and the science behind one of her favorite movies, 2001, A Space Odyssey. And now, Dr. Roberta Bonder. You're not only the first Canadian woman in space, you're the first neurologist in space. And that was the focus of your space shuttle mission as well. And there's a lot of talk now about missions to Mars. There seems to be a lot of movement in that direction. I'm just wondering, based on your experiences and what you know, like what are the challenges for the human body for a mission like that? There are tremendous challenges, none of which I think are insurmountable. It's just that we need to take the right steps to figure it out. I've always felt we should go to the moon. I've said this for years, that in some ways, if I'd been in the U.S. space program, I'd have done a passionate argument for going to the moon, not for building a space station. Mm. Uh, Why? Why? Because, first of all, you continue to develop big rockets. They already were doing that. Two, the space station 
is international, sure, but so is a lunar base. Mm -hmm. Let's try to get along, folks, on a lunar base. Uh, space stations sometimes think of a tall mass ship at sea and you're trying to always refuel and everything else. And it's great to be able to have all those techniques. And it is a little closer, but if you're going to go to Mars eventually, mm -hmm. it's going to be a lot farther away. So why not look at telecommunication systems? Why not look at remote health issues? Why not look at engineering things? How do we build structures? How do we learn from being on the moon to go farther into space? And uh, the space shuttle was always, to me, an experimental vehicle. To me, it never was one that was properly made for commercial. I mean, one day it's experimental. The next day, Reagan's saying that space is open to us now. Right. You know, the dream is alive. When actually, if we'd just taken all that money and expertise, and we'd have been on the moon for years, we could have had laboratories. And it would have also given us a sense of how we can cooperate with each other internationally, how we deal with thorny issues about mining, how we deal with some of the legal issues about being in space and sharing copyright, uh, etc. So I think it would, in the long run, be even safer in one respect uh, than space station. There's not been a major accident on space station. They've all been very interesting things that have happened, whether they're holes they find or little fires or whatever yeah. beer, I mean, it was almost extinguished by a fire. I was in Moscow when that happened. Yeah, yeah. And, then, yeah. and so you, you realize the fragility of our life when we're sitting up in something like that floating around. So I do think that the lunar expeditions are important. They're important to give us the confidence about what human beings need to go on long journeys. Now remember, the moon still has a gravitational field. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not as strong as the one on Mars, and it's certainly not as strong on Mars as it is on Earth. Right. Nonetheless, we could start looking at the kinds of physiological things we need to. We could develop better radiation protection, which had huge spin-offs down here on Earth. I mean, anyone who's had to wear a heavy lead apron when they're having an x-ray taken will attest to that. Right. So to be able to understand different forms of radiation, and we do know that background radiation of space produces changes in experimental animal model brains mm -hmm. uh, that are similar to those we find in Alzheimer's disease. So it's not insignificant, so the kinds of that changes. That seems like a big worry, and, actually. Yeah, and yeah. now even in Space Station, the recent report actually this week was about the shedding of different viruses in space, That uh, things that give you shingles uh, comes out of, because they hide inside the ganglia by the spinal cord. After we have chicken pox, it just stays in our body and then comes out when we're not feeling well or we have some other kind of immune deficiency such as Hodgkin's or cancer. So those are things that we know the immune system is not as good in space, and we know bacteria, viruses, and who knows what else could uh, erupt in space. I mean, the longest people have been in space is just over a year. Right. I mean, that's just like one person for just over a year. Right. So you start thinking about how much knowledge do we have about how people are going to be able to survive. And it's not just about getting your name in the Guinness Book of Records and a one-way trip to Mars. It's about having the ethics of having people return. It's mm -hmm. about life, the thing that we value the most. So I think taking the proper steps and getting there in an ethical manner and in measured time is, is very important. We so need we, these expeditions. Yeah, we shouldn't rush into it, basically, is what you're saying. I think uh, it's, it's easy to sit here and say, hey, I want to go to Mars, but, you know, technology might be there way before we're right. really 100% sure. And I know being a pioneer, you take all kinds of risks. Yeah. I think sometimes the people who are the ones that are most gung-ho about going are the ones that are not going to perhaps uh, assess the risk as ethically and as morally correct as we probably need to do. Yeah. Because it's not only them that gets affected, it's the whole program, it's, it's their family, it's other things. Mm -hmm. uh, and by not 
trying at least to take some precautions or identifying these risks, I think we do a disservice to our fellow human being. So we've had people in space for periods of time, at least now for you know 50 plus years. I mean, what, what do we know about the long-term impact of having spent time in space on the human body? Well, we do know that there's uh, the biggest one issue, of course, is bone loss. And bone loss is something we haven't quite corralled yet. Uh, we do know that when people are in space, they try to exercise at least two hours a day doing some aerobic stuff. And there are hydraulic things, they, not hydraulic, but there are basically equivalent to that of presses and different exercises that one can use to try to keep muscle strength up. But when you start thinking about it down here on Earth, I mean, you and I are doing more against gravity right now than astronauts do. And we've mm. been sitting here for at least 20 minutes. And so in space, what's your body going to listen to? The two hours you're exercising or the 22 hours you're not? And I think that's the crux. How do we determine what is the minimal that we need in terms of exercise in order to try to mitigate against the risk of osteopenia, the loss of bone, mm -hmm. and osteoporosis, which would be a fracture with loss of bone. We try to think about people who would be coming down to step on the surface of Mars without proper exercise and breaking a leg when they get to the bottom of the thing. Now, mind you, it's only one-third the gravitational pull of Earth, but nonetheless... Our bodies are tuned for 1G. We're made for one times the gravitational right. pull of this planet. When we go to Mars, which is one-third of the moon, one-sixth, what is the minimum we need for that without getting into trouble? Well, you know, I mean, you can do the math, but the body doesn't do that kind of math. It kind of does things logarithmically. I mean, is it possible that we're made to be on this planet and maybe we shouldn't be going into space? Well, I don't, I don't know about that. I think there are things that we have to think about about what we want the body to be. Do we want it to be optimally the 1G body? Do we want to be a new one-third G body of Mars? Do we put things on Mars to recreate uh, something on Earth? Or can we do it pharmacologically? Problem is, of course, other organs don't particularly listen to that. Every organ in that body is affected. It's not just bones. One of the big issues we face in space is nutrition. Mm -hmm. It's extremely challenged because things are not absorbed the same in the gut. And you can think about, yes, it sounds to reason you'd lose muscle in the legs and probably some cardiac muscle if you were a marathon runner before you went to space because that muscle mass probably goes before the leg mass. But when you start thinking about how you take calories in, the food is just not absorbed. We haven't even begun to deal with a lot of the absorption issues in space. Heaven knows we can't even deal with some of them here on Earth. But space may provide us with the opportunity to see things in a different way and learn about a different mechanism that's in play in the body right. that only gets revealed when we get into space that maybe we can change down here on Earth that might have some effect on people with Crohn's disease or any other, other malnutrition kinds of syndromes that we have. So I think there are a lot of wonderful things to be learned, but it's because the body has changed because it, it doesn't get stimulated by mm. gravity anymore. We're in free fall. We can measure gravity, but the body's not sensitive enough to the 1 to the 18th right. gals. It's right. sensitive to the 1G mostly. So in 2001, the space station, they had their own internal gravity, did they not? Oh, that's, that a, that's a very interesting concept. People have asked me that a lot. But mm -hmm. You start thinking about, and as a vestibular physiologist, I think about it this way. You go into space because you want the gravitational field to be lessened so you can do something. Mm -hmm. And that usually involves something to do with commercial things like growing crystals in space because they get crunched down here on Earth, um, pulled down by the weight of gravity. So mm -hmm. you can make big, big crystals in space or, or something else. So you don't want gravity. 
So you have a spinning space station. Well, in order to maintain the same kind of gravitational field that you have on Earth with the spinning space station, my understanding is that space station has to be a mile in diameter. So, okay. so, so forget big. that. Okay, so now we got a short arm centrifuge or something like that. So the 2001 spacecraft where the guy was jogging around right. thing, uh, you can imagine the acceleration forces now. So you have the free fall or less gravity in the center and you've got to go to work in the center. So you're on the spinning outer part of the platform, while the center is the part that's got the free fall. And you have to now go from the outside to the inside, down one of these spokes, these tunnels. As you're walking down, it's akin to being on a piano stool, spinning around and then taking your head and putting it down onto one knee and lifting it up, putting it down to the other knee. As you're spinning around, Hmm. it's two different directions and your ears are going like, what are you doing to me? I'm going to make you stop because I'm going to make you throw up. There's a common pathway for the body to express its displeasure when you have conflicting signals and right. the vestibular system can't deal with it. This guy jogging around that thing was really science fiction. This was science fiction, exactly, yeah. Uh, interesting. Um, so you spent 12 days in space. What was the most surprising thing when you got up there? I think human behavior was probably the most surprising one. Seeing the Earth from space, of course, is a separate story, but human behavior it really can change in space because we, at least for the first little while, are cognitively different. I mean, you have a shift of fluids in the body, you mm -hmm. get this sort of puffy-looking face and these skinny legs. Right. Uh, but people don't realize that most of the body is like the world, like 70%'s got fluid in it. Right. So the head has fluid in it, so the brain cells have fluid in it. You have cerebral spinal fluid itself, which doesn't normally float like it does when mm -hmm. you're in space. Right. So you end up challenging the brain, and it's thought that we have what's called raised intracranial pressure. And we see this when astronauts of long-term flights come back because the back of their eye has changed. Uh, people become less nearsighted and more farsighted. So if you're <laughs> nearsighted and you become more farsighted, you can actually be normosighted, which is what happened to me. Uh, I didn't need my glasses the whole trip. I tried putting them on. I tried squinting. None of it changed anything for me. Did that last? Uh, no. Not when I came back. It no. finally went okay. away. But yeah. the point was that I had raised intracranial pressure. and. Yeah. The whole business of um, being sick when you first go into space, there are a number of different physiological reasons that we have for not feeling so hot when we first get up there, but this raised pressure is one of them. So when people come back from space now, some people have permanent damage to the retina. Mm. They have holes in their visual field called cotton wool spots that get in the back of the retina. Yeah. I mean, this is my deep area of interest in neuro-ophthalmology. So I don't want to get too into the weeds. No, no. It. So but what does that mean for them and, it means and their for vision? Them that, yeah, it means for them that they don't have their normal vision. Right. They think it's great because they can see better in the distance, but then right. it confounds their reading vision. Right. And then if they have holes in their vision, that's yeah. not so good either because when you scan a newspaper, you have to keep moving your eyes around to get rid of the holes. And this is just the early days of mm -hmm. looking at this. This is just people who are coming back from long-term flight and there have been very few mm -hmm. of them. Like David, when he comes back, is mm -hmm. going to be going through a lot of tests. But because he's a physician, it's going to be wonderful for science right. that he's given himself to do this. And he may go up more than once. He may go to the moon. I have no idea what's in his crystal ball. But for the near future, when he comes back, he's going to be giving some very good input about how he felt how mm -hmm. things could be improved, whether it's looking at first aid kind of issues mm -hmm. or whether it's how to anecdotally maybe something that people need to concentrate on in the future that right. he's been able to observe in himself and his colleagues. You talked about behavioral change though. Was there a personality change yeah, that was, you saw? It, it actually, it was kind of fun. We had on my flight, I had a commander who was from the Navy. It was all hierarchical. 
But on the flight, he was cooking me my meals. He gave up his sleep cabinet for me because we we're an odd number crew and he was allowed to have one cabinet by himself because we were two 12-hour shifts. He says, well, I'll bunk up with Ulf Merbold, the German guy. He said, he'll be on at night and I'll be on the day. It's okay, you take the one by yourself. It's the only concession I'm going to make to you as a woman. <laughs> so, well, that's, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. So he was really good. But I know that on other flights, there's all kinds of reports. It's called having the space stupids. I must say, I had it when I first went up. It's because we're in a very challenging environment where every surface is like a floor or a ceiling or a wall. Mm. It just takes a nanosecond to make it what it isn't. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time I looked down at my feet, I was in these foot restraints trying to give something to make me stop vomiting. And I looked at my feet and they were on these floor tiles I'd never seen before with this alien writing on it. And then after a while, I realized that I was sticking out from the mid-deck lockers that have alphanumerics on numbers and letter combinations to give us locations of various things that are inside the lockers. I had never seen it upside down. <laughs> and they looked like big floor tiles, right. but it was the wall. Wow. And so that's a very disorienting thing. You have to start being able to disregard, the brain has to start disregarding information that's not useful. You're a pilot coming in on a very turbulent flight and you can't get nervous while you're doing that. You have to go to the checklist because otherwise you can do nothing. Mm -hmm. So fear doesn't have its place in that moment. It has its place to stimulate us to learn better and do better things. Right. So when one becomes disoriented because suddenly things are coming from behind our head, up from our feet, they're at all angles. You have to read at all angles. You have to be able to recognize stuff at every angle in a bicycle wheel. There's no vertical, no horizontal anymore. Mm -hmm. It's always at an angle. And down here, we are so used to the horizontal and vertical. Everything we do is described by that. So anytime in art, you see something that's a circle or an oblique angle, you think it's, wow, isn't that interesting? And that takes your mind to look at something. Right. But in space, it becomes that all the time. And you talk about fear too. Uh, how do you manage fear in situations like that? And how much were you aware of being afraid when you're up there? My true belief is that's where the training comes in. People who are untrained are the ones that get afraid. Uh, people who are not focused and disciplined and get distracted by things that are not within their training, it becomes very difficult. I mean, you might get some very well-trained, focused person who suddenly is a place where someone has a heart attack and they get afraid because they haven't been trained in CPR and they, they get nervous and scared and they don't know what to do and they hit 911, which is the best thing they could possibly do, I suppose. So we think about any kind of time we do training is to try to take that and apply it to everything we do. So that's why we talk about critical thinking as being the skill set that's really so important because mm -hmm. you can then apply it across the board for a number of different things. And that, plus the fact that if you're in science, you know about some answers and you know that some of the answers are not known and it really diminishes the fear factor. I think being able to not control one's environment is something one has to never be comfortable with for most people. Right. But you have to be comfortable in knowing what you can do about it. And you start thinking about a space shuttle or a spacecraft or whatever. If you start always thinking that it could go down and I can't do anything about it, then if something else happens that you can do something about you'd get distracted right. because you think, well, it's going to go down anyway. Right. So it's not about the absence of fear, but it's just managing that. It's, well, absolutely. It's risk management. It's always about risk management and what your level of risk tolerance is. What was running through your head as you took off and those booster rockets are going in your... Yeah, it certainly wasn't a very comfortable ride. 
nobody told me that the last 45 seconds you can't breathe oh. uh, because that's when you have three times your body weight on your chest. And if you have a 100-pound flight suit on top... How did no one tell you that, though? Well, because they don't. They can't simulate it. Wow. Oh, the, so I, I think they just forget. Yeah. Right? So They can handle it. Yeah, well, it so, well it's, there are bigger things, bigger fish to fry, right? So when we were the last 45 seconds before many engines cut off, the commander was panting over the thing. He was calling out the seconds, bless his heart, because he didn't have, much, he didn't have any more fresh air than we did. Right. And he's trying to breathe against this heavy acceleration force. Now, all of us could pull 5G in a snap on a, in a centrifuge without passing out. 7G, a bit much for me, but... You go to 5G and you kind of know what to do to deal with it, but it's not for very long. 3G for 45 seconds is a long time when you're wearing a 100-pound suit and yeah. getting it right through the chest. It's like trying to open up your rib cage and your lungs to take fresh air in when you've got like, I don't know, 300 pounds on top of you. Wow. But that's You can't, I mean, <laughs> it's like hard to breathe. Yeah, that sounds intense. Mm-hmm. That's one of the interesting parts. The rest of it was very, very noisy in spite of the helmet and mm-hmm. the comm set. Very noisy. And I just said to myself, this is so far away from Star Trek and Flash Gordon. This is like the most rudimentary tin can possible. Yeah. I mean, that's very it, true it, about it, space it really travel. Was. It yeah. was. It's in, being inside a Roman candle, being inside an explosive device. Which it did do, too. I mean, Well, that's what it is. It's yeah. an explosive device. You yeah. Actually, they're on either side of you, and you're in the middle. And how much is that running through your mind, too? Because I think Challenger, obviously, well, is, uh, and that happened after had, you joined the space agency. After they went, uh, you go for throttle up, that's when the Challenger exploded. Yeah. And uh, so through the maximum dynamic pressure on the vehicle, Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, everyone's doing a high five in the mid-deck, so I yeah. guess we were thinking about it. Mm. I want to go back to where this all began. And so you were born in Sault Ste. Marie? I am. Yeah. I was. Yeah, I was. <laughs> and what, what was Sault Ste. Marie back then? What were your parents doing? Well, I was born in 45 because anyone can Google that. I was born at a time, it was just after World War II. And it was a time when women were staying in the workforce. Now, my mother had always wanted to be a teacher at school, but didn't have the opportunity financially to go away and be trained. So she would teach at Sunday school or supply teach because she was a whiz at all commercial subjects and eventually went back to university and got her papers as a teacher and a department head. No way. Uh, and she mentored cheerleaders. She was an incredible woman. And my dad also, after the war, he served in the war, but wasn't posted overseas. Mm-hmm. But he had always wanted to be an accountant. But in those days, you couldn't do continuing education. You missed a subject too bad. You know, mm-hmm. that was your life. Tough it out. So he became an office manager of a local utilities company, the public utility. But they were very, very keen on the out-of-doors, very keen on athletics and They really encouraged us to ask questions and be in outdoor activities. So that's what I did all through school. Right. Plus put plastic model rockets together and did projects on little birds and, you know, all kinds of little things. We don't have enough time to talk about here. I I do want to get into that. So where do the Bonders come from? uh, The Bonder family itself, it's my grandfather, came over back at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s. And he left Russia, but it was right on the border of Russia and the Ukraine. So mm-hmm. I'm touted as the first Ukrainian in space. Right, nice. Because he was born in Kiev. And of course, back in those days, who knows exactly what flag was flying over the hospital. And then he left and brought his wife with him, mm-hmm. uh, who found out lately was Jewish. Mm-hmm. I always thought she was Polish Roman Catholic, but she just never know, right? Right. And uh, so they brought their two young boys over, and then they had the rest of the family. My dad was one of them, mm-hmm. born in the Sioux. And on my mother's side, they were from, my grandfather was from the United States. Oh, wow. Uh, I didn't know that till later on in my life. 
uh, because uh, he had died and my grandmother had remarried. So I grew up in uh, basically an Anglo-Saxon from Wales and England on one side and from Russia with love on the other. And it was this combination in my parents of interest in biology, interest in photography, and interest in the arts that my mother certainly provided that really helped me formulate how I approached projects and how I approached critical thinking and, and life. Amazing. And you're growing up right through the space race and all that's happening sort of in the background to your life, which I guess must yeah, have been an inspiration. I, it was, and I had actually an ace in that my aunt, my dad's uh, only sister, married an American, lived in New York, and then when the work ran out in New York, they moved down to Florida to this burgeoning space industry where my uncle became something at McDonald Detweiler. I don't exactly know what he did. He was probably on some kind of assembly line. Right. But my aunt, she was a, a secretary in the vehicle assembly building. No way. On the 13th floor, yeah. So she would send my sister and me these crests and posters. And so... You can imagine the first time I went down to Florida, which was in grade eight, yeah. uh, we went down and we visited and I just felt this was my destiny. This is what I wanted to do. Uh, it pulled all my interests together. So I, I had that little bit of extra stuff and my uncle, who was the photographer, was very interested in, he was a pharmacist and gave me my first microscope. I mean, things that my parents couldn't afford, but mm -hmm. he gave us one time a, a crystal radio set. Yeah. Uh, to put together. To put together, yeah, amazing. And, and so all that kind of stuff for a, a girl growing up in the city of Sault Ste. Marie, which was not that big a city in those days, mm -hmm. it was like maybe 35, 40,000. Mm -hmm. You know, I was always considered different yeah. at school. Yeah. I mean, I loved athletics, but I also loved science, and that was really odd for a girl. Right, right. And important that your parents, you are different, but they're not discouraging that at all. Uh, no, not, quite the other way. Yeah. They, they would get very upset if people, mm -hmm. and people did, start trying to pigeonhole my sister... Uh, or me into some traditional thing. So rockets, what kind of rockets are we shooting up? In? Oh, we're not shooting any up. No. We couldn't get those. No, oh, I was yes. just building plastic ones, you mm -hmm. know, the rebel ones. My sister would do tall mass ships and she'd have toothpicks with glue on and I'd just have the glue and just put blops on. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I threw all those things out when I got into high school because of yeah. all this pure stuff, right? Sure, yeah. But uh, Christmas, the first year I became an astronaut, my mother had a box under the tree with a big red bow on it inside were all the model rockets that I'd put together. She had saved everything. She one saved of them. them. She did. She felt that mm. I had an unusual <laughs> desire. Yeah. And I had done so many projects on space. She just had this feeling. She knew. Yeah, and so I gave them all to the Bush Plane Museum in my hometown, so they have those for display. And I guess maybe they're going to try to write some of the blobs of glue and some yeah. other things. Yeah, yeah, what a gift though. That's, yeah. a, that's incredible. Um, and so obviously having aunt and uncle in the space industry is a big help, but do you have clear memories of Sputnik? Do you have... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, the clearest memory I have is I knew Sputnik was up, mm. but the clearest memory I have is the first experiment on communication satellites and that was called Echo One. Mm -hmm. And you could see it flying over Sault Ste. Marie on a clear summer's night. Nice. And my dad would take us out in the backyard because there was very little light pollution in those days. And you could see this thing moving across. It would be like today, kids looking up and seeing space station move across, which you can see. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing, just thinking that something's human made. Right. In those days, uh, people were not as jaundiced, perhaps, as they are today. I mean, right. with all the satellites and everything that had been put up, people... It's very difficult to think of a time when there weren't satellites in space. But this was like a 10-story high reflecting balloon that they used to bounce radio signals off and time it, how it got back to Earth. Mm. So it was, uh, it was Echo 1 and then Echo 2. And it just really kept me philosophical about space. And right. I think that's... As much as I like engineering and science... 
I think if a person's not somewhat philosophical about things that we do and our destiny and things, the kind of things we can do in sure. terms of our behaviors, we're lost as a society. Mm-hmm. It can't just be science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear that. Um, but so science is obviously, is that in high school, that's your forte and that's the Actually, thing. it wasn't. Wasn't it? Oh, English and French. No way. Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. It was, I mean, I like science and I like math. Yeah. And uh, I did a science fair project. I was vice president of the science club and yeah. did this big science fair project and won the science fair in the Sioux yeah. and came down to the nationals and got an honorable mention. Mm. Uh, but I liked, enjoyed them. Yeah. They weren't my best marks. My best thing was phys ed. I was yeah. going to be a phys ed teacher. Right. Uh, but the idea of science, to be able to answer questions and to be able to help pose them and to yeah. run a science experiment, sat with me from grade six. I know specifically it was grade six. Yeah, why? Because that was the first time the teacher said, we're going to learn about science today and this is how you do a science experiment. You have to run the methods and the conclusions and um, I just, wow, isn't this something? Yeah. I went home and my dad took me up to his uh, parents' house and we got all the old test tubes and stuff that he had for his science classes and chemistry and then my uncle's stuff when he was taking his pharmacy training. So I had a little built-in lab in the basement mm-hmm. that I'd fool around with this stuff. I mean, it, we didn't have gas, we didn't have a Bunsen burner, but... I had a little alcohol lamp. And right. Yeah, these days you probably you know have to have safety goggles yeah, and a fire yeah, extinguisher yeah. and sign a, a permit wa- from the sign city. Sign a waiver, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no <laughs> kidding. Um, there's an inkling that space is something you're fascinated in, but at this point all the astronauts are clearly men, and not just men, but they're fighter pilots. It's an ultra-super masculine field in a way, isn't it? And so how do you keep envisioning that and keep moving towards that? Well, there's a movie that my dad took of us when the Golden Hawks came into the Sioux, which was an aerobatic team that the Department of National Defense had to Mm -hmm. try to get people encouraged to go into flying. And of course, that's what I wanted to do. And uh, we were right on a border city. So there was a Kinchel Air Force Base across Mm -hmm. the river. Uh, So I had plenty of opportunity to go to air shows and see all this stuff. But you're right. I mean... I wanted to become a pilot uh, in the armed forces and there was just no way I could do it. So my life has been extremely expensive because I've had to do, as a woman, do everything on my own. So when I got into medical school, I'd already had my license and I knew that I just couldn't afford medical school. And I went into the medical officer's training program application and I was accepted and everything. And then I realized that I have to put so many years back Mm -hmm. before I could become a specialist and it didn't wash with me. So I thought, well, I'll just do it on my own. Because I knew all the time if I wanted to go into space, it wasn't going to be as an engineer because that wasn't my passion. My passion was the engineering of the body. Right. It was about cellular structure and cellular function and how these things came together to be able to do all the disparate things that the human does mm-hmm. and also with animals. Uh, I mean, I just was never without my microscope. And I just loved histology when I did my PhD. It was all about microscopes. So everything I selected, whether it was my master's or PhD, it all had to be about cellular structure. Mm-hmm. And I liked the technical part of it, doing all the preparation, everything. I just really enjoyed studying the brain. Mm-hmm. And I felt that it would be something that I really wanted to focus on. You talked earlier about the philosophical side of space. And I, what do you think we should be looking for in space beyond the science? I think it's trying to find goodness in ourselves, one mm-hmm. thing is to think that we can go and look for something new because we're curious creatures and we will always be interested in things that might improve our lives that are important to us personally, whatever our value system is about what we do with it. It's a very personal thing. 
and to go into space and think there must be some greater form of life out there or something that I can learn that will make my life better or last longer or those of my loved ones if you have that propensity to think of other people. Some people don't, I understand. But I just think that it's not just because it's out there, it is out there, but we're always trying to think that there's something greater that we could be part of. Did you get more of a sense of that being out there? I may have got uh, less of a sense. And because when I looked away from the planet, you see a lot of stars, but they're not twinkling because we're above the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So they're dead points of light. Right. And there's lots of it. And you just know cerebrally that that light could be from something that is not there anymore. Like what is the history of humankind since that light began? Uh, Philosophically, it's very interesting. Looking into the blackness of space, it's like a black that I couldn't even describe. I've been calling it light-sucking black because down here you say black and you, you kind of know about a texture or absence of light. But up there it's like unbelievably three-dimensional nothingness. And like to look f- back on the planet Earth and see the sunlight reflecting back to our eyes of the colors in the visible light spectrum that we see, it makes it so amazing. And yeah. knowing that there are other planets that have even different patterns and different things that may be growing. I know there's life elsewhere. What kind of life it is, I don't know. But to think that we are the sole center of the universe is verging on the bizarre. There's a couple of questions I've I've been asking people in this. And uh, one is when you, this may be with your shuttle mission, but is, and, and when you travel generally, is there something you always bring with you that's like almost a talisman or something you wouldn't go anywhere without, or is there? Uh, I think it's varied throughout my life. Yeah. Uh, certainly when I was younger, I mentioned I, I wouldn't go anywhere without my microscope. Yeah. I just wouldn't. And later on, I would never go without my doctor's kit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always had my stethoscope with me wherever I went. And now wherever I go, you know, I always have my cameras with me, but I don't have point and shoot cameras. Uh, I have very big artistic heavy cameras, right. uh, but I don't feel comfortable going anywhere without ability to write notes. And I don't mean just use a computer. I think I have probably more notebooks than most normal individuals. <laughs> and uh, hopefully someday they won't find a trunk of these things that are useless, but uh, I try to make journals everywhere I go yeah. on all my field trips. I'm glad I did it because through the training of the space program, they're now historical documents. Sure. And they're, you know, they, there's some personal views in it and some yeah. maybe mundane details and sure. bits and pieces. Yeah. But I find that um, I like crayons. I like the smell of crayons. They nice. remind me of a time when things were simpler and during a time when I was very inspired to do things. And I find myself quite often reflecting back on those times, uh, the earlier times in my life, because Mm. they were a protected time, a time of of fun and joy. And life can start getting you down later on because of decisions other people make that affect your life or by health issues of other people or deaths, uh, things that are are very sobering about life. And for me to be able to keep being the inspiration that people look to me to be, I have to find some joy. And during my dark times that we all have, I find that I need to be surrounded by some books or take take the time just to look at some of the books that I had. I've got all my high school books of chemistry and physics. And they just, they energize me again. Uh, Thoughts 
that uh, my family felt that I was so worthwhile that I could do some of these things. So it's an inspiration for me. People yeah. are an inspiration. I have people around me now that inspire me because they, they don't complain. They, they do great things. So to answer your question, I probably keep my memories with me and uh, my notebooks and my crayons. And smell is the ultimate trigger for memory, isn't it? That's Unless you don't have any. Oh. No, seriously, but, Alzheimer's patients uh, remarkably have lost their sense of smell huh. by and large. Interesting. Yeah, it's yeah, a, one of the clinical symptoms, but... So I digress. Uh, but the crayons are, are great, and I mm. find that every year there's a sale on it uh, at a stationery store, and I go down and get my little new box of crayons, even though I'm probably not through one. Yeah, that's great. And the other question I have is, is there a place in Canada that's like a happy place that you go to when you're maybe you're stressed or the place you think of? I don't know if it's by a lake or somewhere like that. But. Well, generically speaking, I think any time I'm outside and away from human-derived environments mm. is, uh, is, is very good for me. I like very much being out in the field. I like the feel of the wind. I, I don't even mind a little bit of rain. I just like being where birds are because they remind me of freedom and joy and color. And they're totally dependent on how we treat them, but they're totally independent of what we want them to do. Uh, I, I just really admire them for that. I admire that they have to work through their own intricate social paths every day and their own behaviors with each other and with predators and everything. But they're always joyous little creatures that flap about and cock their heads and make eye contact and sing. And they're something that takes me above the level of some of the base human behavior that we're exposed to on so many news channels. Right. Well, I think that's a lovely place to leave it off. Unless there's anything else that you want to add? No, I think the one thing that's always important is what makes a person want to explore? What makes an explorer an explorer? What are the kinds of things that a person thinks they can achieve? Is it for personal goal? Is it for humanity at large? Is it a combination? I think the idea of being able to somehow experience something in a different way for one's own personal life, whether it doesn't matter if you're 80 or you're 8 or you're 18. The idea of trying to do something different, trying to learn from something is very important. It's not trying to always be at a dinner table beside the same person or beside someone who has the same interests, but rather be with someone who can help you enter a new world of thought. And that's what explorers and pioneers do. They enter a new way to try to look at life and approach life and bring new things that either give us joy or give us a new direction to help us make the lives of others better. Fantastic. Roberta Bondar, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank this you. This has been lovely. That's Dr. Roberta Bondar talking to us on Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast brought to you by the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. For 90 years, the RCGS has been dedicated to making Canada better known to Canadians and the world through print and digital media under the Canadian Geographic brand. It also funds education materials, expeditions, research, public events, and much, much more. You can support the important work of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society by making a tax-deductible donation today at rcgs.org forward slash donate.